Hello, welcome to a podcast for The Lancet. It's August the 1st, 2019, and I'm Gavin Cleaver. Between 1970 and now, large-scale reforms to the welfare state in America have had a tumultuous effect on vulnerable people. A punitive edge to social policy since has seen American incarceration rates increase sevenfold in that time, with a knock-on effect on society. I'm joined by Professor Sir Michael Marmot, the Director of the UCL Institute of Health Equity, and Dr Elias Nosrati, Research Fellow at Merton College, Oxford, to discuss the effects of punitive social policy on public health, and to talk about whether budgetary belt tightening across the UK and Europe is beginning to lead wealthy countries down a similar path. Michael and Elias, thank you so much for joining me today. Pleasure. Thank you. So explain to me a little bit about this notion of the upstream determinants of health. What do we mean by that? Well... I've spent my life trying to get away from simply thinking about health as related to what you do, uh, smoking, drinking, uh, patterns of physical activity, which of course are all important, or the healthcare response to illness, which of course is important. But if we ask what I call the causes of the causes, so why do people smoke, drink, behave the way they do? Uh, and why, particularly when thinking about health inequalities, does smoking follow a social gradient? Does the ill health effects of alcohol follow a social gradient? Why do people in affluent societies do less physical activity as you go down the social hierarchy? All of those are what I call the causes of the causes. And that means we need to look upstream. And in my English review, the so-called Marmot Review of Health Inequalities, we talked about early childhood. We talked the second was education. Third, employment and working conditions. Fourth, having enough money to live on. The fifth was healthy and sustainable places to live and work. And then the sixth one was to do with behaviors. So they're the upstream determinants. And we could go further upstream. And this is what Elias has been pursuing uh, um, in relation to social policy, macro-social effects. But I'll let Elias talk about um, punitive social policy. Yes, well, I think one of the reasons we started working on incarceration together with Michael was that the factors he just listed as part of the Marmot Review, early childhood experiences, workplaces, poverty, and so on, it it struck me that um, something like incarceration, which has uh, been part of an extraordinary change in the American social policy landscape in recent decades, uh, is bound to affect these factors in powerful ways, and uh, moving upstream entails looking at the causes of the causes, but then in some ways also understanding what shapes those causes of the causes. And incarceration, and more broadly speaking, what we call punitive social policy in this essay, um, seem to be a natural place to to look. And indeed, uh, we've we've reviewed some of the evidence and we've we've conducted some research and uh, we see that systematically incarceration seems to be a powerful force through which the social determinants of health operate uh, on local populations. So you talk in this essay about the intergenerational effects of punitive social policy. How do these manifest? Well, uh, let me start with um, the concern about adverse child experiences. 
there's huge concern, a lot of interest, particularly in the UK, in Scotland and Wales, and of course in England, but they're really more active in Scotland, on how adverse child experiences damage children's development and their subsequent health and well-being. And one of those adverse child experiences is a parent being locked up, but others are physical abuse of children, psychological abuse, sexual abuse, uh, drug and alcohol problems uh, at home. And um, this is where Elias's interest comes in because all of those are affected by incarceration. That's right. One thing we see, of course, is that incarceration does not only affect those who go to jail or who go to prison, but that incarceration, especially in the form of this extraordinary expansion of the criminal justice system in the U.S., um, has cascading effects across um, social networks. It can disrupt social ties, um, separate families. Uh, it can have huge consequences for local communities and neighborhoods. And so one of the things we've been trying to do is to understand how incarceration affects not only those who are incarcerated, but has ripple effects across a range of important uh, social parameters that affect health. You, you talk about how um, rates of incarceration in the U.S. have gone up so rapidly since the 1970s. Obviously, rates of incarceration in the U.K. and Europe are far below those of the USA. But in terms of um, the introduction of punitive social policy to these societies, do, do you believe we could eventually see a kind of similar effect in, in the U.K. and Europe? It's a tricky question. One thing that we do uh, point to in our essay is that although Europe is nowhere near the U.S. in absolute levels, the criminal justice system has expanded also in Europe and the U.K. Uh, prisons are overcrowded. Uh, there is uh, an increasing shift towards punitive treatment of those at the bottom of the social structure. Now, of course, incarceration is one manifestation amongst uh, many of what we call punitive social policy. It's mo perhaps its most salient manifestation. In the U.S., incarceration has been at the forefront. In Europe, it is in some ways moving in the same direction, but uh, that form of interventionism at the bottom of the class structure can take many different forms, and certainly, as we point out uh, in, our, in our essay, uh, austerity has been one of them, another manifestation. And so what we call punitive social policy really denotes a broader social policy repertoire which operates in very different ways across the social structure. And I think certainly we've seen, uh, at least to some degree, a convergence across the Atlantic. And there are alternatives. I mean, people have suggested, not entirely tongue-in-cheek, that the cost of putting a young person in a punitive institution is about the cost of sending someone to Eton for a year. And given what's going on in Britain at the moment, you may say that's a tough choice, which <laughs> is worse. Um, but it does suggest that given how much it costs to lock up a young person, and given the adverse impact on the young person from being in one of these institutions, there might be a better way we could spend the money 
that would improve that young person's life and also have a less adverse impact on the community. So President Moore, I wanted to touch briefly on uh, it being 10 years, of course, since the Marmot Review, February 2010. Uh, how do you look back on the last decade of, of social policy in Britain? I've always been saying that I see the world through rose-coloured spectacles. So uh, I, everybody else thinks we're in total chaos. And I look at the good things that are happening. Um, <laughs> I may need to take some pills for this condition that I have. Um, but, I mean, we when I produced my review in 2010, um, and soon after we had a government whose main priority was austerity, and that made things much harder because while I wasn't calling to spend a lot of money, I certainly wasn't calling to spend less money on early childhood. Uh, it wasn't in my frame of reference that we should close a thousand Sure Start Children's Centres. Um, that wasn't something that I imagined happening, that we should uh, increase the proportion of families with children in poverty. Uh, that certainly wasn't in my frame of reference. So there have been a lot of adverse trends uh, and as we now know, life expectancy in Britain stopped increasing. And it stopped increasing around 2011, 12, uh, and health inequalities have been increasing. So there have been some adverse trends, and we, don't, we can't definitely say, ah, this policy of austerity led to that health effect. It's too difficult to say that. But there have been some adverse trends in health and some adverse trends in the generosity of the welfare state. Uh, whether they're causally linked, I've been cautious, but it leads one to speculate. I'm going to produce a 10-year update to my 2010 report in February 2020, and the background will be this stalling life expectancy and the increase in equality. And I hope that we'll be able to give some more oomph to the concern with the social determinants of health so that um, people can start to take it seriously again. And if I could just explain why I have this folly of optimism, um, we're working with, for example, Greater Manchester, uh, the city of Coventry has de declared itself a Marmot city. Uh, we've been doing work in boroughs in East London. So we've been working with cities and localities in different parts of the UK who've been actively engaged in taking the recommendations from my 2010 report and implementing, the, implementing them. This is part of, um, I think, what you talk about as a multi-dimensional approach to the, the understanding of inequalities and their upstream determinants. So what is it that people in public health who might be listening to this can do about any of this? A great deal. I got all excited when an editorial in The Guardian said public health is about the social determinants of health, and that means addressing poverty and inequality. And you might say, oh, well, it's The Guardian. Okay, but it's The Guardian. 
And now I'd like the Times and the Daily Mail to say the same thing, but it's a recognition that public health isn't only about making sure people get access to stop smoking as services. It isn't only about early detection of illness and making sure that there's uptake, uptake of screening opportunities across the social gradient. It's about addressing the conditions in which people are born, grow, live, work, and age. And that is the role of public health. I mean, there's been a lot of hand-wringing about whether it's been good or bad for public health to be in local authorities, but it's certainly a potential opportunity to work with other arms of local government to take action across the conditions in which people are born, grow, live, work, and age. So it's an opportunity for public health to play the major role it should. Now, many, including me, have been somewhat critical of the Green Paper on Prevention that was issued in all the fuss last week. Uh, because it doesn't quite recognize these key social determinants which are vital to improving health and reducing health inequalities. The approach to public health that Michael uh, has outlined and that he represents and his work represents in many ways goes back to the origins of public health. People tend to forget that. Uh, I think, um, am I right in saying that it was Virchow who said uh, that medicine is a social science and politics is nothing but medicine on a grand scale? And I think uh, this approach is often forgotten, but ultimately it is where public health comes from and its orientation towards social justice uh, is something that, uh, thanks to Michael, we, we can start taking seriously again. So just finally, I wanted to ask you um, the, about the, uh, the need for public health to react to the issues posed by climate change. Do you think that the issues posed by climate change mean that this whole systems approach to public health, that uh, the attention towards the most vulnerable in society uh, needs to be accelerated? Or do you think climate change actually poses an issue for public health policy at the moment? Firstly, climate change can damage health. So anybody who's concerned with health has to be concerned with climate change. Uh, whether it's heat deaths in cities in Europe, uh, whether it's desertification uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, um, climate change can damage health. So public health has to be concerned with it. Secondly, to deal with climate change, we've actually got to change the way we do things as a society. And what I'm arguing in my concern with the social determinants of health, is we have to change the way we do things as a society. It's not only focusing downstream, it's focusing upstream. And what Elias has brought to um, the whole discussion in punitive social policy is one way of thinking of doing things differently. And thirdly, the effects of climate change on people's health and well-being is not equally distributed among populations, either within countries or between countries. Climate change is a bit of an inconvenience in a rich country. It's life or death in a poor country. So the, uh, although we in the rich countries are responsible for climate change, the effects on people's health and well-being are much bigger in poor countries 
whether it's Bangladesh going underwater, whether it's drought uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, the effects of climate change um, are worse in poor countries. And in rich countries, we need to be very careful that the actions we take to mitigate or adapt to climate change don't have adverse equity impact. So, for example, quite a good thing to have a green tax, but a green tax is regressive. If you charge everybody the same for using fuel, um, then that will make inequalities worse. I'm not against green taxes. I'm all for green taxes. But then we've got to address inequality. And just as I argue that with social determinants of health, we have to address inequality, with climate change, we have to address inequality. So for these three reasons, public health and climate change, the people concerned with climate change, have to work together. I think you summed it up rather well. But if anything, I would say that, uh, to me, climate change in many ways serves to re-emphasize the importance of looking upstream. Uh, I think looking at these issues, many of the things that we have talked about today, they, they come together, they, they come hand in hand, and they, they operate in, 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 in interconnected ways. And trying to attack one issue at a time in isolation from the others is ultimately not going to work. That's one of the things we point out in our essay towards the end. Yeah. We say that we need to have a relational, a multidimensional approach that takes into account how a lot of these different challenges that we face as a society operate at the intersection of a number of crucial political, economic, and social dynamics. And so climate change is a very good example of, uh, of an area where it is not only useful, but quintessential to look upstream. It's been a real pleasure talking with you both today. You can read Dr. Nasrati and Professor Marmot's essay online now at thelancet.com. Thank you both so much for your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much.